The following episode was recorded on January 30th, 2021. Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of the City and Krampus podcast. My name is Hikmat Jamal and we are back with an episode after a long wait on a topic that I believe is very interesting with a very interesting guest. Today's guest is Carl Kramer. Carl is a PhD candidate in urban and regional development at Politecnico and Università di Torino in Italy. His research focuses on the intersection of degrowth and urban studies, investigating what implications a degrowth transformation would have for cities and territories. At the same time, he's an activist of the Italian degrowth movement, Movimento por la Decrescita Felice. Hello, Carl. I hope I haven't butchered that too much. Uh, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for the invitation, Ikmat. It was really uh, unexpected and, and I'm really happy to be able to talk about my research here. Yeah, and no, I'm very excited myself. Um, and I guess maybe we'll just jump right into it. Um, for starters, one of the things we're going to be discussing today is this idea of um, degrowth and how it relates in particular to urban planning. Uh, but before we can even get there, maybe you want to define um, or give us a brief overview of the term degrowth and what exactly it is. Definitely. Um, so it's it's not a very easy thing to do, actually, um, because degrowth is a very heterogeneous debate, um, which comes from many different disciplines. Uh, and it's both activist and academic. For example, here in Italy, it's it's probably a term that is more activist. Um, and while in most parts of the world, especially the English-speaking world, it's probably up today more more academic actually. Uh, but uh, it always tries to to keep these two things together. Um, so what what I think uh, for in my view of degrowth is is very clear are um, four points. Uh, of course, the basic there's a basic critique of the current system, um, economic social economic system, which is oriented at unlimited growth, which uh, we see as unsustainable, but also ecologically, but also undesirable uh, in in social and individual terms. So. On this basis, what we say is necessary is a real quantitative reduction of production and consumption globally, uh, which which is a basic condition for ecological sustainability. Um, but then this reduction needs to be done selectively because, uh, in the second place, the pursuit of social justice through through redistribution is fundamental, and um, this. Both inside, let's say, societies and and between societies. For example, there is this very important issue of um, the reduction of exploitative relations in in social ecological terms between global north and global south. Uh, and finally, um, in the global north, because I would say degrowth per se is is a thing more of the global north. Um, there, there is the pursuit of individual well-being and happiness uh, with reduced material wealth, which which um, Degrowth proposes to be achieved in particular uh, through a reduction of time and space dedicated 
to work, to production, to consumption, and in much more time and space dedicated to social relations, art, uh, music, and, and so on. Um, so this is the very global idea of degrowth, I would say. Yeah, no, I mean, that's super helpful, uh, especially just to get a big picture idea of what degrowth is and what um, what sphere, I guess, degrowth operates in. Um, I guess maybe just a very natural question following up on that is um, seeing the connection between degrowth and urban planning. It might not be, or maybe it is, but it might not be a very obvious um you know, an obvious area of application as to how degrowth applies to urban planning. Uh, so I want to get your thoughts on that, you know, in terms of degrowth, so this philosophy that is an economic and, you know, it's a philosophical idea around how we should live our lives. How does that translate to, um, I guess, normative beliefs about how we should plan our cities um, and the way, the places we live? That's a very big question. Um, yeah, perhaps I, I'll start with the with the point about the connection. Uh, indeed, it's something that is relatively underexplored. I would I would say I'm I'm actually currently working on an article uh, which tries to review all the debate which so far has has happened. Um, about uh, cities and degrowth, urban planning, urban geography and so on, which is not very really huge, but in, in the last three, four years, there has been quite a, um, a surge of, of, of contributions. Um, but there's relatively little about uh, uh, um, a general reflection about why there's a, a connection. And um, I would say, my, my, my perhaps favorite answer at the moment is um, that there is a strong connection because, uh, as I said, degrowth argues for a reduction of production and consumption globally, right? And um, this means, of course, a reduction of flows of matter and energy. Um, and if you see, if you look at cities uh, from a perspective which doesn't just see the city as, as some bounded place, but uh, you see it in a relational perspective, like for example in, in, in the debate on planetary urbanization or uh, in, the, in the writings of Doreen Massey, um, who argues that, that cities are actually and places are made of the relations uh, which which meet there. Um, and then you say on the other hand that, that in some way these flows have to be globally reduced. I think that this is a problem which becomes quite quite evident. So that, that there is a that degrowth poses important challenges to uh, what cities are and how they can be configured. Then of course you can you can think it in many different ways. You can uh, there's of course all the debate on cities as centers of economic growth, for example, which is something that basically um, degrowth criticizes. And this is perhaps in a very general theoretical way. Um, then uh, I yeah, and, and perhaps I, I I directly pass to one one. Answer or no? I think that's to answer it. I don't know. That, no. that, that, no, that <laughs> Tell sense. me. <laughs> Sorry, uh, perhaps I'm getting lost. Essentially, you touched on what was my next kind of question or area I wanted to explore is this idea of cities, um, the conventional approach to cities or view of cities, cities as places of growth, cities emerging, whether it's post-industrial revolution or 
uh, with advances in technology, people amalgamate in cities, you get these uh, you know, mass production going on, mass consumption, and that's essentially what we've been taught um, in textbooks and film and, you know, just the common, uh, it seems like the common belief is that's what, that's where cities come from. There are centers of growth. People get together and that's where growth happens, right? So I'm interested in hearing, so if if we do adopt a degrowth kind of philosophy towards urban planning, right, how would that impact the massive urbanizing force that we see all around us and the growth of cities all around the world, right? Um, and this is probably a, a very uh, a, a big mega question. Uh, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Right. Um, so I... I th- this is like the central question of what I'm interested in. So, But perhaps <laughs> especially because of this, it's, it's not so easy for me to answer. Um, because I think there are many uncertainties, definitely. Um, so, of course, there, there is, to this conventional um, story you, you told, there's also a relatively conventional answer, I would say, in which which in part is taken up by, by degrowth or by some people in degrowth, and uh, which has been quite popular for a long time in... Okay. Okay, connection is working now, right? Yeah, yeah, sorry, my end again. Okay, sorry. No problem. Uh, so, um, so this idea that, that we have in some way these, these small settlements which are, which can be based on their local hinterlands and, and uh, live autonomously in their bioregion, and then perhaps they may in some way confederate for some larger functions and, and coordinate in a larger scale. Um, so I am very critical of this perspective for for a couple of reasons. Um, in the first place, and I, I think this is fundamental, um, the problem is that we, we don't have a blank space, but we have a space which is made of, of, of uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of history, and so we have uh, stratified geographies of cities and and, and non-cities and um, I think it's very um, it's also very naive to me to think that you can in some way imagine the perfect structure which can work in in this um, ecologically bounded way um, and to build it on on, on top of this stratified geography we have and and then of course it was, was would also be problematic in material and energetic terms because we have all this uh, energy and matter which is enclosed in, in all the buildings we have simply in the infrastructures and and like um, getting away with all of that and then rebuilding it from this, from from scratch would would uh, signify also uh, an enormous consumption of matter and energy again so um, it. It might even be um, uh, very contradictory in, in ecological terms, and so 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 what I argue for is to think about degrowth transformations also in, in in urban spatial terms, starting with with what are the existing geographies, and so uh, I think that cities are a fact at the moment and. A large uh, urban urban geography we have today, with 
bigger cities, smaller cities, mm-hmm. urban sprawl. This is an, in the first place, it's a fact. And and then I think that it's very important to think about place specific uh, solutions if we really want to go into that. And so it's not that easy to give very general uh, answers. Um, perhaps there are some general tendencies indeed. So. Uh, one thing that has happened, for example, in the last over the last decades in in the global north, um, is that per capita surfaces like uh, build build up surfaces, living surfaces have yeah. have have grown enormously, right? Which has to do uh, with an increase of wealth, with with growth itself, which has to do with the fact that families have get, gotten always smaller and many people live uh, as singles, and of course, if everybody living alone has the need of a kitchen, uh, that that increases. Yeah a lot the space that is needed and of course not only the space itself but the space you need to heat the space you fill up with objects and and this has all kinds of repercussions yeah so this the stream of studies which researches happiness and they, they have these very interesting graphs for example on, on the us where they where they have made these these surveys for many decades now about how people um feel about their life and, and how satisfied they are and and what you can see is that above a certain level of um, of uh, material well-being uh, of GDP growth uh, happiness stopped growing and actually it even went down in some some studies or remained stable so so I think this is an important starting point to say that it's not necessary that there's no linear connection between GDP and happiness. Obviously, if you live in a, in a situation of, of, of poverty and, and uh, deprivation of, of basic um, material needs, uh, this doesn't help happiness, this is clear. But uh, it's not that it really increases happiness if you live in ever bigger houses and you have like two cars per capita or, or, uh, or so on. Yeah. Um, so this is the premise. And... Then the idea is that that actually what is very important for happiness is, for example, uh, sharing, um, togetherness, uh, spending time with other people, uh, having meaningful relationships uh, in your family, with your friends, um, being able to have like social connections, uh, cultural activities, um, political engagement, I think, is also something that, that... makes makes um, sense to many people and this in that way also contributes to well-being actually and um, of course this is not automatic and and it depends very much on also the social cultural ideas we have interiorized so it's it's a it's a hard point and and there's probably a necessity of a big social cultural change uh, but and if you realize that, uh, I think I think it's not so absurd to think that uh, if you spend less time working uh, for for your salary and you spend less time um, shopping, but in, instead you have more time for uh, meaningful conversations, for uh, cultivating your orchard, for um, making bread together, for singing together, for going to a concert, uh, for 
um, attending to uh, conferences about issues that you're interested in yeah. and so on and so forth um, can actually help making a meaningful life and and contribute to well-being and I, I think one point I would really like to add here in, in order that it that it doesn't seem something very uh, from a privileged connection it, it is of course a position it's of course fundamental that this is connected also to a debate on redistribution because it's it's clear that it's easier uh, for someone like me to say that uh, I, I, I do research it's a PhD and I have my I have a lot of freedom on and it's harder to to say that for someone who has a precarious job um, but uh, degrowth is is also very much arguing for for the redistribution of of wealth and criticizes very much the idea of the trickle down effect which is like the yeah. redistribution idea of the economic growth that in some way uh, we all everybody gets richer at least a bit if, mm -hmm. if some even get richer more but some will trickle down and this is something which empirically doesn't really has worked in some historical periods but in most historical periods it hasn't really worked and so actually we need to find um different ways of of, of redistributing wealth yeah uh, definitely I, I, I mean uh, if i can even just jump in there even in terms of trickle down it's probably the case that you know wealth has trickled up in, since the 70s since you know yeah um you know people have just the gap has just gotten so much bigger um and you mentioned that you know for me like the fact that um like you mentioned a lot of these social activities spend time together you know for maybe some of the introverts um you know maybe this i'm speaking for myself here even a bit is this <laughs> idea of like you know spending time to do things um that you're passionate about on your own like that's like this idea for example also, like, like let's yeah, yeah. Like, let's say like you know instead of five hour five days a week i work four days a week like for me that's like i don't think it's far-fetched I, I i actually do um you know i'm i'm very convinced by this argument where you can improve life and reduce stuff like just just stuff right um so you know i don't think the practical or the the convincing part i think if people do really see about what they're passionate about what are they working for um like whatever you're working for you think about what that is right and then you can think okay so what if i spend less time working and more time doing that thing you know yeah, if you're yeah. working to spend time with your family you know a lot of people especially um you know working class people who are providing for their family right of course this piece on wealth distribution um, and, you know, even ideas like things, you know, you often hear alongside degrowth, so wh whether it be, you know, a basic income or, you know, something like that even, right? Um, it all often comes in hand in hand, right? So, yeah, sure, of course, once people have those, you know, basic needs met for, you know, you can actually do the things that you really want to do. Um, so I, I think it's very convincing in that on that end. Um, let, let let me add, let me add one point here. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, uh, something proposals like basic income I think are important. Um, um, but but just to get back to an urban component here, also to an urban element, um, I think that uh, of course rethinking the way we pass our time in 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 such ways also has important implications again on how to think rethink spaces in our cities mm -hmm. uh, because i think it's quite it's I think it can be quite obvious that uh, this uh, on one side uh, can free space because if we 
as a society pass less time at our workplaces i always imagine like like those those small secondary streets uh where uh, like with houses around them and they're basically used to park cars most of the space there and so if you imagine that um you you use less cars and there are less cars around and you could like um dig up some of these streets and in the middle you you just uh make uh, orchards or playing playgrounds or whatever like real living spaces which is something that actually in 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 barcelona they're trying to do with the super block project yeah um in that direction so i think for example this is on on that micro urban level a very a very nice uh, direction to to think in. yeah i mean even in um um especially with like this idea of like cars Personally, like how I got into urban planning and um, the degrowth mindset even, um, and this is maybe a couple of years ago, is um, I saw this really interesting um, kind of like a little doodle or comic kind of thing, right? Where it was basically um, a person surrounded by, I think, around 120 horses. And he said, mm-hmm. come on, we're going, to the, we're going to pick up bread from the grocery store, right? And it was making fun of the idea of like, you know, for example, like a 120 horsepower car, you know, it's this big one ton of metal, and people use it for, and, and it's not necessarily, I'm not blaming um, like people in general, just for the fact that how our cities in many cases, especially in North American context are designed, is to pick up a bag of bread, right? Or to pick up a bag of milk from the store. You have to get that one ton of metal in the winter. You have to heat it up. You have to sit in it for 10 minutes and then drive to the grocery store to pick up that one bag, right? And that's just, for me, like that blew my mind. When I saw the comic, I'm like, wow, like that's, you know, um, or even those visuals, if you've, you've probably seen them, of like, for example, how 100 people, um, yeah, how many yeah, space yeah. it takes in a car versus walking versus biking versus a bus and when you see that once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it then the next time you're on the highway you're like okay this is, a, this is like you know a traffic jam this isn't a lot of people in the nearby perimeter i'm only literally with like 40 people but it's taking up the entire space as far as i can see right um so definitely i think the space connection is so so important i'm glad you mentioned it um and even i guess maybe this is where um it kind of we can shift the discussion a bit more to um a bit more specifics for cities, right? Um, so one of the things often heralded as a solution, especially to these, um, with sometimes similar angles, um, and I just say, I say similar because I'm weary of saying they're entirely in agreement, but it's this idea of sustainable development, yeah. right? Um, and you've written the, the paper, I can link it again for the listeners as well. I'll link it in the description, um, which focuses on Copenhagen. Um, but you've written that there's a fundamental difference between sustainable development and degrowth. Um, what is that fundamental difference? So yeah, um, yeah. First, I would I would agree that of course at uh, at an operational level, I would say there are I think many uh, actions, many many measures which which can be perfectly in common, like between a sustainable urban development approach and an urban degrowth approach. Um, so it's it the point is not really to argue against anything that that is being done but what is the problem with sustainable development sustainable development basically argues that um we we have a problem with sustainability of course and and uh, in relation to our economy but uh, we don't need to abandon economic growth what we need to do is to decouple the growth of the economy, the growth of the GDP uh, from the growth of ecological impact. And 
this is of course a great idea, right? Uh, sounds, which sounds very nice, but there's a problem. It doesn't work because, and, and perhaps I can send you the, the reference later because the, the last year there was a great report uh, decoupling debunked, which, which very well summarized uh, the, the problem of decoupling. Um, so what kind the first the first thing is what kind of decoupling would be necessary uh, it would be necessary to have a really uh, decoupling which is in absolute terms so it really uh, if you imagine the two curves plotted on a, on a graph it's not just that they detach in some way which uh, but both continue to grow which is relative decoupling and it happens very frequently um, but you need absolute decoupling. So you need the economy, the, the GDP going up and the ecological impact actually going down. And and you also need it to go down uh, in uh, at a fast enough speed to tackle the great ecological problems we have. It mm -hmm. needs to be equal and and a series of other requirements. And this is something which, which empirically uh, has not been found anywhere in uh, all the decades we have now since the 80s at least that um, sustainable development is actually the mainstream goal and there are also many theoretical arguments uh, why this is so um, and uh, well I, I don't think you have the time to to elaborate on on, on all of them yeah. um, but I, I would just pick two one is um, the so-called rebound effect uh, which which shows that actually the increase in efficiency which then is a central measure uh, proposed to achieve this decoupling right that you uh, produce the same amount of stuff which with less energy and matter um, this has actually been the, one of the basic drivers of economic growth and and because of course it makes it much more yeah. um it makes it much cheaper to produce those yeah things. i mean if i can just jump in there uh, sorry but like just for yeah. that i was actually going to mention that before you mentioned even um <laughs> is this idea of like because the moment you mentioned relative decoupling i thought yeah like for example just maybe uh, for the listeners it might make more, more sense too like if you make a f cheaper way to let's say you know extract coal economically, um, just the way capitalism is, it seems to me, you would extract, you would end up extracting more coal because it's now cheaper to do so, right? You're exactly. using less energy. Uh, but yeah, sorry to cut you off. Maybe you can con continue your second point there. I just wanted to mention the example there. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, this is like the, the classical example, which which is from the 18th century already by a, by a guy named Jevons in, in, the, in the UK who first discussed this, this, uh, this point, which is also called Jevons' paradox. Um, and yeah, and so th this is something you, you see, like the intensity of carbon per uh, US dollar of GDP globally has actually degrown in the last years. The, pro the problem is that the amount of US dollars, uh, so the, the general volume of the economy has grown so much that uh, the total volume of ecological impact has grown too. And uh, then the second point is, is externalization, which I think is a very important issue and which which i discuss or imagine that paper also you you, you refer to uh, which which means that if you measure ecological impact locally um so for example speaking of copenhagen you look at how many greenhouse gas emissions are emitted in copenhagen by 
uh, activities, production, and, and so on, occurring inside Copenhagen, uh, then of course this does not include products you import from other places. And this is something which has happened a lot over the last 50 years, uh, that from countries in the global north you exported, uh, in particular very polluting elements of production, to the global south or to places like China, for example. Yeah. And uh, so you have not only externalized the work and the production, but of course you have also externalized uh, the ecological impact. And then if you use a different technique of accounting, which is called consumption-based accounting, and you rather look on um, how much greenhouse gases, for example, are people living in Copenhagen responsible for considering uh, the goods and services they consume independently from where they are produced, uh, the picture changes radically and right. a place like Copenhagen looks much less sustainable than what it looks like if you use just production-based accounting. Yeah, I mean, even in terms of uh, those like stats of how uh, like how much water, how much electricity used per capita. Um, exactly. Like these European countries, you know, um, in European countries, um, North America, like the global north um, is usually at the top. And then when you look at emissions, you'll see things like China and India, um, Bangladesh and so on and so forth. Um, so definitely that's that's a really good point. I think even in terms of, um, and, and I don't want to detract too much into it. I don't want to go into it too long just because uh, for interest of time. But even from a, I guess, from a decolonial perspective, changing some of the narratives around Definitely. environmentalism yeah. involves that, I think, too. Um, and I guess maybe we can, um, one thing I guess I want to talk about since we've kind of covered the idea of um, sustainable development is recently there have been some efforts, I think, um, on building smart cities or eco cities. And they're usually headed by um a mega corporation, right? Um, so whether in, in the Toronto context, we when the first episode for the podcast actually was on this, it was, um, so Alphabet, uh, you know, the parent company of Google mm-hmm. was building on the Toronto water side, um, this private, you know, city, and it's supposed to be this grand project of, you know, sustainable development, and, you know, it was supposed to be um, this amazing thing that would change people's lives. And there's similar projects going on, whether it's in Nigeria, or um, especially in the Gulf countries, there's a couple, uh, Mazdar City in the UAE, um, so on and so forth. Um, so I guess I want to maybe hear some of your thoughts on that, especially coming from a degrowth mindset, These, uh, this idea of private cities, even if they're geared towards, I guess, on the surface being sustainable. Uh, what are your thoughts on these private cities and this kind of push recently for these kind of things? Yeah, um, so this is not something I have I have researched uh, directly, but I think there, I, I have a few thoughts on that, which are quite quite logic uh, in, in the framework we're talking about. Uh, so the f- in the first place, I would say that, of course, they're, they're quite coherent with the general imaginary of, of what sustainable development uh, and green growth uh, is. So the idea that, okay, you just need some uh, some effort of innovation, technological innovation in particular, and that in some way will magically solve things and you just need a new product which is more sustainable than the old product and, and that, that solves it. Um, but I think that in particular in the case of cities, it's very evident how then these projects are just on top. No? Mm-hmm. Because uh, the problem is, of course, they, they don't from an ecological point of view in the first place, they don't substitute an unsustainable city. 
they are just a new city which is added to all the cities we have already. So even if it would be perfectly sustainable in ecological terms, which I think you can have many doubts on that, uh, it, it would still not really solve the problem because globally we have to reduce our impact, not right. just avoiding adding things. And, and actually we have added a lot of things because uh, they're probably they calculated some way that they're carbon neutral, but then actually you need to consider that you use a lot of, a lot of matter and energy to build them in the first place. Yeah, and, and I guess it's something which is usually little considered. Yeah, and it's a bit like the blank slate you mentioned earlier. It's just kind of- Exactly, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's like the the blank space from a from a sustainable development perspective, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you 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 mentioned an, another point, which I think is very important about the the privateness of the cities, um, which 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 I think is indeed very problematic because, of course, what 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 makes cities uh, stimulating interesting uh, i think is that they are that there's a lot of spontaneity also mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not good in pronouncing the word uh <laughs> building that and that there are many actors building it together right and i mean there have been historical examples of, of like planned cities which are today also stimulating yeah okay but then the then the thing that they're then there's in that way privately controlled uh, and not in some way controlled by any public institution in some way is accountable um it's not probably immediate what 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 degrowth says about gentrification but um there, there has been in particular there have been a few contributions which look critically at um the issue of ecological gentrification mm-hmm. um which which in some way connects back to the issue of externalization in in a different way we we tackled before because one thing that uh, that has happened in 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 occasions where you where like um, how you say eco neighborhoods have been built or or neighborhoods have been transformed into more ecological places of course one of the problems uh, than 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 what happens like for example, in a city like Freiburg in Germany, um, that this also, in a growth context, leads to a rise in housing prices. And then uh, finally, um, some people uh, get expelled, get expelled from, from, from the city or can't find a place to live there anymore. And uh, besides, of course, the social cost, which is enormous of, of a process like mm-hmm. that, and it's very problematic. It also means that actually in, in ecological terms, probably you, you don't really achieve what you want because in the end, uh, people may just maintain uh, less sustainable lifestyles outside uh, the city and you didn't really impact on, on lifestyles finally. Um, so this is one, this is, this is one aspect. Um, then you hinted to something more general um, that of course today, and I think, well, David Harvey has, has written a lot about that, um, that, that, that uh, cities real estate has become one of the uh, big things in, in, in investment, uh, especially since the last uh, economic crisis. And so, of course, uh, real estate is used as a way to 
build uh, economic growth again or financial growth, uh, investing in 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 real estate in neighborhoods and uh, speculating on a rise in yeah. uh, real estate prices and so on. And this in the end, of course, has uh, in the first place very bad social consequences in the form of of, of gentrification and expulsions. Um, so perhaps uh, I'm well. Probably there are two sides to 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 answer such a process. Which one side is is more in a in a financial policy uh, arena? I would say so. Probably uh, and and this I really don't feel to have a lot of expertise about. Uh, is really to intervene on the side of uh, how uh, money can be invested, and I think that um, all this the sensation that today financial markets are are often like crazy playgrounds for people like yeah. <laughs> detached from any kind of real economy and and from anything that is in some ways so, social socially useful i think is a big issue uh, and and i probably think that that degrowth implies a lot of uh, limitations and transformations mm-hmm. there but i i don't really feel a lot of being an expert in there on the urban side on the other hand um for sure, um, getting back to a uh, much stronger right right to the city and right to housing uh, in in the first place is something that I would say is part of the social ecological transformation that that degrowth envisions. Um, probably uh, the specific solutions again need to be quite place specific. I think there is. Um, many people have written about Vienna, which is in the capital of Austria, which uh, many consider like a very virtuous example. Uh, but of course, it has a very specific history. So there has yeah. been this history of uh, buying, uh, uh, building public housing since the 1920s and, and the city never sold it. And so I think like more than half of the people in Vienna live actually in public housing. Wow. And so there's a huge... Um, control public control about what happens with the city and and with housing and indeed it seems um that uh, this is like one of the few examples where also ecological transformations in neighborhoods haven't really led to gentrification processes so uh this combination of social ecological policies i think is is something very important of course, you can't just invent such a history which has like 100 years of, of history from one day to the other. So uh, it, it, it is probably more complex in other places to, to, to realize that. But I think that going back in the direction of more public housing is something useful. I've, an example that I like very much is a German example, which is called Mietshäuser Syndikat, just to give a very okay. specific example. Um, which is a it's it's a network of um, uh, people bottom up network uh, where you have like you have a group of of people in in some specific place and they decide together we build or we buy a house uh, together we we found an association um, and we are supported by this national network which is the syndicate. Um, which gives us uh, financial support and then uh, um, 
and like then the house is co-owned by the local association and by the national association and they block each other against any kind of speculative um, sale uh, further on and then uh, the people living there they're members of the association and which rents the place to them but so they have like a, they are they're not direct owners but they have a control of what happens with the house there cannot be really a speculative investment and there's also a mutual uh, financial support for new projects in order mm -hmm. to be accessible and this is like a thing very very uh, nice example on how to combine um on, on one hand, of course, an issue of, 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 of economic accessibility to housing also in the long term and uh, an idea of, of living together also because, of course, then th these projects become in some way communal projects yeah. where you can also share spaces again and coming back to that issue we, we talked about exactly. before. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned things like community gardens just because I think one of the ways we bring ideas like degrowth into the forefront, right? Get people talking about it and thinking about it is by supposing these um, very relatable ideas that people can discuss and debate and imagine, right? So for example, a community garden is something that a lot of people are familiar with. You know, we've been doing it um, in our cities and in our communities for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Most people are aware of this idea of a shared garden or shared living spaces, right? Different examples of degrowth that we can get people to talk about. Um, and building off that, and we'll end off on this final question, is and it's uh, I think it's a big question. Uh, so you know, just any thoughts or reflections you have on it. But what comes next for degrowth, right? As an idea, as a movement, as an ideology, um, you know, how do we make sure that some of these ideas, right, get implemented and that we can, you know, begin to see some of these changes implemented uh, for the sake of, of uh, you know, avoiding uh, a climate crisis potentially, right? Um, so what comes next for degrowth? Um, I'm, I'm very honest that I don't feel like we have the definite answers now. Well, in, in some way, I also believe in a, in a, in a process of transformation, which uh, doesn't start from like a perfectly defined image of what the future has to look like and um, how, how we should exactly get there um, I, I believe very much in an idea of transformation which has to do with uh, um, something that is called uh, strategic pluralism um, with with uh, like a combination of many different strategies uh, on on different levels which uh, can lead to a transformation and where you don't really say where the distinction between reformism and revolution loses sense in a way. But, um, okay, but I, I don't want to avoid in some way answering your question. No, I, I think I, I think you, um, like what I was getting at is this idea of like what next kind of thing, which I worded yeah, poorly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned kind of like how the, um, and I'll, I'll let you finish okay. your thought on how, like what comes next for Diego then. Um, I'm, especially I guess not having some definitive plan uh, makes a lot of sense yeah yeah um, yeah because I think I don't know I, at least in my take on history um, like I don't know I, I have the impression that having two well-defined ideologies uh, hasn't necessarily led to very fortunate results so um, yeah so uh, okay so 
I, I think that degrowth needs to work on, on, on many levels. Um, there is uh, still, of course, necess- and there will always be a necessity of, of research, academic research. Uh, there needs to be activism, which, which means uh, in the first place, uh, of course, talking about degrowth like we're doing now, uh, um, spreading ideas, spreading debates, um, in starting to uh, make doubts about uh, what the sense of um, of the economic system is more common, and but of course it's also um, I, I think there are many projects, many specific also activisms which uh, work together with degrowth. Um, there has been a nice project uh, which is called Degrowth in Movements, uh, which which you can find on the web, uh, which tried to connect um, degrowth to all kinds of different movements from, I think, eco-feminist movement, from the um, climate justice movement, uh, uh, and so on. I think there are fights, for example, against uh, the construction of mega infrastructures mm-hmm. which uh, connect to degrowth. There are fights against uh, gentrification which can, which can be in harmony with degrowth. There are um, little projects of communal orchards which, which can work together with degrowth, co-housing projects, eco-village projects. For example, like I'm, for example, eco-village projects. It's not that I'm against eco-villages, just to be clear about that. Yeah. Um, I think they can be very stimulating, um, for example. So, so I... I believe very much in this in this idea of the strategic pluralism uh, of degrowth and then of course there is also political level uh, like last year two years ago in the european parliament there was a there, there was a degrowth uh, debate for example i think this is important i think it's important that um degrowth with the word degrowth or without it uh, or just some degrowth ideas uh, become more popular And that, folks, brings us to the end of the episode. You might have noticed that the final word Carl was just mentioning right there in in his answer uh, did get cut out. And maybe a keen listener might have noticed throughout the episode that there have been times where questions or answers have kind of, you know, a choppy feel to it. Um, I've done my best to make sure everything does make sense just because of some connection issues on my end. When I recorded the podcast with Carl, um, I did have some issues. And this is, you know, my attempt at fixing those uh, hopefully, future episodes of the podcast will avoid these. Um, so, I want to thank Carl once again. Um, and I want to thank everyone for, if you've gotten this far, you know, 46, 47 minutes in, if you've gotten this far, congratulations. Um, I'll be posting the resources Carl mentioned um, throughout the episode onto a Google Doc and putting them on Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter at City and Crumpets. Um, we'll just post a regular updates there and you can follow us and ask any questions or make suggestions if you have um, and with that I want to end the podcast once again thank you for everyone for listening thank you Carl once again um, this is Hikmat Jamal and signing out goodbye